All right, good morning, everybody. For those who don't know me, I'm Pastor Jim, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs there, it's going to be on page 911. It's the end of Acts chapter 2, page 911. And as we're uh, thinking about small groups, uh, one thing I wanted to uh, make everyone aware of, because sometimes I forget uh, that you guys don't write small group questions every week, um, so I can remember them. But for those who don't, uh, we have hard copies available where you got your bulletin, and we also post the small group questions online with the sermon, so you can get it offline there. And... Uh, and for those in my small group, we'll be at Walker's tonight at 6.30, and kids will be at my house destroying my basement. <laughs> awesome. So, Acts chapter 2. We're moving on from Pentecost. And after the story of Pentecost, after this huge movement of the Spirit so that 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and are baptized. Which again, another little commercial. If you'd like to be baptized and haven't, we're having a baptismal service next week. So you're welcome. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders about following God and obedience in there. But after that, we come to verse 42. And verses 42 to 47 give us a summary of community life. And it's a part of this pattern that you see in the book of Acts, where there is the work of God's mission, the work of preaching to the nations, of people coming to Christ, and then followed by a story or a description of the early church community. And as you read Acts, you see this alternating pattern of mission and community, mission and community. And so in this wonderful movement of the Spirit and the mission of the church of bringing 3,000 people to Jesus Christ, we now turn to see what everyday life was like for the church. And what we need to see is the model of real biblical community that is described in these short verses. And we need to apply these nitty-gritty details and truths to our church. To say this is how the church should live. This is how we live in the everyday life and everyday moments. And the temptation this morning for you will be to say, well, yeah, they should do that. So I want you to take that picture of that person you're thinking of right now and just put it away and picture yourself. Picture how God wants you to live in community. And when you do that, because I struggled with that all week as I was writing this. When you do that, you are allowing God's word to change you. Because you're not going to want to do what is described here. You're going to want the benefits of this. But when you look at the description and you look at the benefits, you're going to see that the cost of this community is great. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the description. We're going to understand the benefits of biblical community. And then we're going to spend some time talking about the cost of community. Because just like in other parts of life, we want the benefits without the work. I mean, think about a normal thing like losing weight. We just want weight loss to just sort of magically happen. 
Some of you are exactly with me on this one. Okay, good, good metaphor, Jim. Okay. <laughs> and again, I, I put myself both in the community thing and in the weight loss thing. Let's just be honest about that. That we want the benefits without the work. But real benefits cost real work. Life-changing benefits require sacrifice. And again, the temptation will be just to read this and to go home and have lunch, maybe take a nap if you're lucky, and forget all about it. So let's speak plainly this morning. Let's hold up that mirror of Scripture to our hearts. And let's look at what God is calling us to be as a real community and not to take the easy way out, but to take the hard route, which is the better life-giving, joy-giving route. So let's look at the short text here this morning. So first we're going to look at the answer to the question, what is biblical community? So the first thing I want us to see is that biblical community is a committed community. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. First thing I want us to see is that they were devoted. That there was persistence, that there was a striving that they had to live in godly community and that they were devoted to one another in community. Again, what we'd like to see is that they sometimes gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That Every other week, they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Because again, that'd be easier. But when you're devoted to something, it has to be a priority. And when you have priorities, there are some things you just can't do that you want to do. And so the church was committed And let's look briefly what they were committed to. First of all, the apostles' teaching. That the proclamation of the word of God is central to the biblical community. We are not formed through all having the same opinions because last time I checked, we all do not have the same opinions. In fact, we have a lot of opinions here. Good thing mine are right. Anyway... But they were devoted to the word of God being taught. At the center of their community was the doctrine of the Bible. Was the belief that Jesus was the one Savior who died for sinners like you and me. If we don't have Jesus and teaching about Jesus at the center of our community, we don't have a biblical community. The only thing that can bring us together in real community is the gospel. Nothing else can bear the weight of community. Not liking the same type of music, not having the same ideas of social justice, all good things, but not enough to bear the weight of biblical community. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can unify us. Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to having real relationships. They were devoted to actually knowing one another past, hey, how about them Seahawks? Now that's an important question. It's a very important question, but it's not enough. 
If I know you like the Seahawks, do I really know you? I know a part of you. I know that you like football. But, but that's not a real relationship. That's not the foundation for a real relationship. Again, it has to get past sports and the weather. I mean, let's be honest. We talk about the weather a lot here. We really like to talk about weather. We're really good at talking about rain. And that's wonderful. I want you to do this. I want you to count during the week how many times you have conversations about the weather. It's awesome. You see how many times you actually do talk about fog. But anyway. But that can't be it. Because if you know my opinions about rain, you, you don't really know me. But we need to be devoted to real relationships. And part of that means being involved past coming on Sunday morning. It's part of it. But it can't be it. This is why we make such a big deal about small groups and our smaller groups. This is why we make a big deal about men's and women's Bible studies and serving together. You want to know someone, come to Mops and serve with them. Go into the nursery and you can see the character of someone. Do children's church with someone you don't really know and you will know them afterwards. I promise. I promise. But we have to be devoted to those relationships. For some of you, it means hanging around and having a cup of coffee after church as the first step of building real relationships. This is why we do Third Thursday for our seniors so that they can know me and I can know them. Now, we'll talk about the cost of having real relationships. Don't worry, we're getting there but not till the end. So you have to stay awake the whole time. But notice there, real fellowship, real relationships. We also see that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now it's a little hard to know what is meant by breaking of bread here. At a very minimum, it refers to what we might call church potlucks. They ate together. Now, in the early church, there is record that oftentimes they would have a meal, and then at the end of that meal, that's when they do communion. So it might refer to that as well. So at a very minimum, it's potluck, but it also is very probable that it means potluck plus communion. This idea of, one, spending time together, of sharing food with one another, and if it includes communion, which it probably does, the idea that, that we have fellowship with one another because we all have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And I'll say a little more about that when we take communion today. But that they were committed to this rhythm of sharing food with one another and probably sharing the Lord's Supper together. Lastly, they were devoted to the prayers. They were a praying together church. Now, there are many different ways to be a praying church and to be a praying member of a praying community. We, we, we begin by praying individually. We pray as a part of our small groups, that, that in each of our small groups there is a prayer component. We pray on Sunday morning, as we've already experienced so far. And, and we have an elder uh, available every service, after every service, available for prayer. And you can find that in your bulletin. Those are just a couple ways. But they are ways that we try to build into the DNA of our community prayer, because prayer is important to our community. This is why we have pictures in our phone directory so that you can pray for and look at the person you're praying for. This is why the elders pray through the directory every meeting. 
Again, again, it'd be, it'd be easy just to not pray. It'd be easier just to not take that time because what do, what do you have to do when you pray? You have to stop. And let's just think about our culture for a second. If there's a vice in our culture, it's stopping. If there's a vice in our culture, it's unplugging and getting away from those screens, all of the different screens we have. I recently saw, I think it's a recent uh, cover by Time magazine where they superimposed a, a phone screen on someone's arm to demonstrate just how plugged in we are. And if you're always plugged in 24-7 like it's your, a part of your arm, you're not going to stop and pray. And so you have to give up being plugged in. And for some of us, and I'll include myself in this, it's hard. It's a habit that we've built up, but we need to build up the habit of prayer and the habit of praying for one another in community, praying together. Next, I want us to see that, that in addition to being a committed community, which by the way, let me say one more thing, sorry. I'm not really sorry, but let me say one more thing. In your small groups or in your personal devotions this week, I want you to think about that list of four things. Apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and the prayers. And would they have made your list for what are at the center of biblical community? And what do you notice isn't there? What do you notice is there? And that's just a good thing for you to think through. What are your priorities in this community? What are your expectations for this community? Anyway, let's move on. Next, I want us to see that this was a God-approved community. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So we're told this summary fact that the apostles, that God gave them the ability to do miracles. That's the wonders and signs there in verse 43. And the pattern we see in your Bible is that God gives miracles to testify to the truth being spoken. And so what we see here is God giving miracles to the early church to testify that what they are saying about Jesus is true. Now part of this is where we are at in salvation history in Acts chapter 2. The church has really just, in a sense, begun. And so God is testifying because they, there are people watching them and saying, is this really from God? And so God gives his testimony. But we also see, again, look at verse 43, how it begins, and awe came upon every soul, that there's a certain level of awe, a certain level of respect, a certain level of fear given to the church because of these miracles. And this fits another pattern that, that one of the authors I was reading, he says this, where divine activity is associated with a group, such activity causes all to be careful, respectful, even nervous notice of what is happening inside the community. And so God is using miracles to show his approval to the outside world to show that they really are his people. And this one is a little harder to say, how do I apply this to my life? But my one thought is, are we a community known for being God's people? Because that's what's happening because of these miracles. That people are knowing them as God's people, a place that God approves of. And are we a community known for that? The other way I think that we can understand this is that there are places, especially in the global south, where God still works in this way. I received the following story from a missionary friend 
a story of a new convert who came to Christ through a dream. Or at least was introduced to Jesus through a dream. He said this, She also would walk around her neighborhood with the father. It's going to be a little cryptic because he's not in an open country. So just bear with me on that. And ask him for various things on behalf of her neighbors. So she would walk in her neighborhood praying for people. This led to a prompting and a conversation with one of her neighbors who was sick. At first, she rejected the invitation to ask in the name of I am. Again, that's when your email is being monitored, you find different ways to write emails. But so she's walking around her neighborhood. She talks to a neighbor who is sick. And this new convert asked her neighbor to pray in the name of Jesus to be healed. At first, she rejected the invitation to ask in the name of I am. She wanted to try the local witch doctor instead. After that didn't work, a second opportunity came, and this time she prayed in the name of I am. Shortly after, she was healed. And so we see this, especially in contexts where there are witch doctors and sorcery and beliefs about magic, especially in the global south, where God still can use miracles to show that what his people are saying is the truth. And as a part of that, we understand that any community we build is the Holy Spirit working in us, that we couldn't do it without him, and that we need God to work in our hearts and to work on our behalf to to build community through us. So they were a committed community. They were a God-approved community. They were also a generous community. Look at verses 44 and 45. So we're going to talk about money. I'm just going to warn people. Okay, good, you're warned. All right, we all good? All right, let's go. They were a generous community. Verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The community took care of itself. But one little detail that we need to understand in that care is that it's the whole community caring for the whole community. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. The care of a community is too big for one person. It's too big for a couple people. The care for a community must come from each and every one of us caring for each other. The job's just too big. And so we are all called to care for one another. And not only did they all care for one another, but they completely cared one another. Look at the end of verse 45. Distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So the generosity was based on the need. And the whole community came together to fulfill the needs of the community. That good community is both giving and receiving. And again, it'd be easier to just be the receiving. But it's not better. We need to be both giving and receiving. And God is pleased when that giving is completely generous. Look look at the little, little story we have in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings. They were having garage sales 
and bringing the proceeds and putting them in the offering plate or bag. We have bags. Okay. I just want you to have that picture. I'm sort of bringing it and, and calling it a garage sale even though I don't think they had garages back then. I think it was a couple years before the car got invented. But, but when I read this, I say to myself, I've never even thought about doing that. And here's the challenge. Like, can you imagine? I mean, we would be very surprised, maybe even shocked, if, if someone said, yeah, I had a garage sale uh, so that I could give offering. I mean, we just don't do that. But some of them were. Some of them who knew of needs in the congregation because they lived in community went as far as selling their stuff so that other people could have money. Again, that, that's pretty generous. Now in chapter 4, we're going to take it up a notch where a guy sells his house. Get ready for that one. He has a second home. You know, he lived there on the weekends. Maybe he commuted from Seattle to the island. <laughs> and he sold one of them and just dumps it in the offering plate. That's a challenge there, isn't it? And again, we're not going to keep track of how many of you have garage sales so that you can give offering. It's not the point. Don't miss the point. The point is generosity with everything, even money. Because if, here's, here's what I think. Here's what I've experienced. If I know someone is generous with their time and their money, they're usually generous with everything else. And God's calling us to be generous with the resources we never feel that we have enough of. Have you ever met anyone who said, you know what, I just have too much money? If you have, invite them to church. I'm just kidding. <laughs> or have you ever met someone who said, I just have too much time? Now, I know some spouses whose spouses have retired who are saying that, but usually it's not the person themselves. But again, hold this up to your life. There's a radical generosity that marks the early believers. And God is pleased with any generosity, and here's the best part. He knows what's generous for you. He knows exactly what generosity looks like for you. I don't know, and I will never know. You know, one of the things that we do as a church is I never know how much any of you give or if you even give it all. I don't need to know. Because I think it's very clear in Scripture that God has called all of us who have to share with those who don't have and to meet the needs of the community. Notice we're not told dollar amounts. Number one, they didn't have dollars back then. But secondly, secondly, what we see is generosity to meet the needs of the community. And maybe part of it is asking, God, how are you calling me to be generous? What do you want me to give with my time, with my money, with my stuff? Again, I will never know. But God knows. The other thing I want to say is that we as the church in the West have been materially blessed more than any other part of the world. Let's just be honest about that. And I think because of that, 
we are called to lead the charge in being generous. I also look at our denomination and our region and I look at our church and I've shared this before and this is not a source of pride but we are the second biggest church in our denomination, in our region which goes from Bellingham down to Ballard and over to Snohomish. We're the second biggest. Now again, that's not a pride thing but it's a perspective thing that we have more resources than most of the churches in our region. We also have more resources than many of the churches in our whole district, which is most of Washington, Oregon, and Alaska. I I was able to visit with our district board. I went to their board meeting voluntarily if you can believe that. Um, In fact, one of the pastors said, he said to Jeff, our regional supervisor, he's like, Jeff, I'm so glad you invited Jim to come to this. And Jeff said, no, it was Jim's choice. And he just looked at me for a little bit. He was like, when I was your age, I did not go to more meetings than I had to. But I went, (laughs) and what I realized is, number one, there is a lot of work to be done for the gospel in our district. We live in one of the most unchurched areas in the country. And there is opportunity for us as a church here, in Green Bank, in the island, and to give support to the work of the gospel in the whole Seattle and Northwest area. the thing as I sat there in that meeting, one of the things I thought of was that even guys who have been in this district for 10, 15, 20 years, most of their churches could not even begin to have a conversation about bringing on a second pastor. I mean, I want us to understand that we're blessed in that we could even have that conversation in the first place. And I think God will bless us in that because we are able we will be able to do so much more ministry that not only affects the island but can also affect our region and our district and so we did take on more need we've never shied away from that but I think we took on more need because we could and because we saw the benefits for gospel ministry. But with more needs do come the need for more generosity. Now don't worry, I'm not going to talk about money every week because I don't need to. But when the text talks about it, I want to show it. That one way you can show that you have placed your trust in Jesus and he is your king is to be generous with giving funds, giving the money he's blessed you with for the ministry. And I think our church, as we, as we met about this, as we discussed this, we did not do this fast, but we said this ministry is worth the investment. But it's going to take investment again we have taken on greater need but I know that through the generosity of this church we can meet that need to not only bring Jesus more to the island but to our whole area and I challenge you to read these and to ask Jesus how am I giving Do I need to give more? Can I give more? Again, I don't know what you give. And so I'm never going to come up to you and say, hey, you need to give more. And again, we're not going to be a church that talks about this all the time, but when it's in the text, we need to talk about it. And I think we're doing the right thing, and I know God will be pleased with what we're doing. 
but it will take many of you to be generous with your giving. All right. Very good. We can, we can pray about that later. You can come talk to me. You can give me a hug later. It's good. Let's move on. Again, we're going to talk about somebody selling their house later. Just throwing that out there. Read chapter 4. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But generosity with money and with everything marks a biblical community. All right, a gathered community, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were together. They were together in worship. They were together in fellowship. They were in each other's homes. But look at when. Look at when they were worshiping together. Look at when they were with each other in their homes. Day by day. Daily. Regularly. The church gathered together. And we know from books like Hebrews that very early on in the church there was a temptation to not gather together. The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 10 says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That's already in the New Testament. There's always been a temptation for the church not to gather together. But here we see they were regularly together in worship and in life. Because, here I'm going to preach to the choir a little bit. Because you guys are all here. But if, if you're not here regularly, how can we experience the benefits of community? If I don't know you, how can I know your needs? How can I encourage you if, if I never see you? And it's a real simple thing, but it's so essential to community that you have to be devoted to be here. And again, I totally understand I'm preaching to the choir on this one, but it's in the text. (laughs) So blame the Bible. But if you want the benefits of community, you gotta be here. It's as simple as that. And when you are, when you worship together, when you fellowship together, I think it's then that as you experience life and life together, you find joy in that life. Again, it's harder, but it's better. Look at the end of verse 46. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. There is joy to be found in biblical community. And maybe one of the reasons you don't have joy in your life right now is because you have not fully engaged with the community. Again, it's easier not to. You even see this in architecture and houses. You know, we used to have big porches, front porches. People just sit on them. But now we just, it's easier. Just, just go into your garage. You don't have to see anybody in your neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, just think about that. Think how, if we wanted to, how easy it would be to just isolate yourself from everything. It's easier, but it won't bring you joy. Joy is found in the harder bits of community, of being around each other, of having life together. See next, a missional community. Look at verse 47. I'll back up in a little bit into verse 46. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
One of the biggest difference between biblical community and other communities out there is that biblical community is not just inward focused. But a biblical community wants others to come into the community. There's an outward focus. There is a mission that we have to bring people in. And there's two ways that we do that. First is having a good reputation out in the community. Building a good reputation as a caring community. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. That people might think we're crazy for being Christians, but they can't deny that we're a loving people. So they might think we're nuts, but they'll respect us as being good people. They'll see us as a caring people. Again, my goal for my life and for your life is that the only offensive thing about you is that you believe Jesus is the only way to be saved. Because that's offensive, so we can't get around that. But I would love for that to be the only offensive thing about me. And it's not yet, but I'm working on it. There's just a lot of offensive things right here. Let's just real talk this morning, okay? Secondly, secondly, we see personal witnessing. So the one of, of, of looking out to the community, building a good reputation, but then also engaging personally the community. Look at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. But you might ask, Jim, where's personal witnessing in there? The reason I think 47 is written that way of the Lord adding to their number is we know that God always works through a human agent, that we are his witnesses. But a witness cannot change the heart of an unbeliever. And so we faithfully proclaim and we trust God to change hearts. And when we faithfully proclaim, God will change some. It's like the metaphor of fishing. I've used it before. It's a good metaphor-ish. But the idea is, if I told you you were going to catch one fish, would you still go? If I could guarantee you one, but only one, would you still go? Probably yes. God does not guarantee a boat full of fish. He does not guarantee that every time I preach a sermon, 3,000 people get saved. That would be awesome, but he doesn't promise that. But he promises some will. And again, we're not told how many. Because ultimately, it's not about the numbers for us. But it's about faithfully proclaiming and trusting God to change hearts. That's what we're about. And knowing God will change some hearts. And so we keep fishing. This is why we do things as a church like mops, like the fall festival, like bounce mania. These things where we not only build our reputation as a church that specifically cares about families and especially kids, but it also gives opportunity for us individually to share Christ. It gives us the opportunity to build those relationships where we can share the love of Jesus with them. That's why we're committed to doing those things. Because it helps us to maintain that outward focus that biblical community has. So let's Let's talk about the costs. Because this is all fine and dandy. This is a great picture. You might even see, man, I'd love to be a part of a church like that. But now the rubber's going to hit the road. And I want to mention a couple things that I think are costs of this type of community. What do I need to do to make this happen? What kind of person do I need to be to cultivate this type of community? And again, if, if you're in a small group, Add to this list. Talk about this list. It's a good opportunity to process things. All right, number one. Here's a cost. Again, this is a list that I came up with. Number one, trust. 
To have this community, you have to trust others and be trustworthy. I'm going to go through these sort of rapid fire, so I'm going to keep moving on. Number two, confession and forgiveness. Because if we're talking about real relationships, if I really know someone, they are going to sin against me and I them. And so we need to have the cost of both confessing our sins and giving forgiveness when others confess to us. And again, by the way, you're not going to like any of these because it'd be easier not to do them. So trust, confession, forgiveness. Number three, long-suffering and grace. You have to put up with people. Again, all the offensiveness right here, you have to put up with me. You have to overlook wrongs when appropriate. You have to give the benefit of the doubt. You can't be as critical as you might want to be. And you have to show grace as a fellow sinner saved by grace. Number four, commitment. What does commitment look like? Being involved and staying. And even staying, sticking around when you don't get your way. Number five, generous with resources. To have this type of community, you have to be a generous person. Number six, serving and being served. You can't have one without the other. And if you do, it's not biblical community. That sometimes you will have to give up even rights to serve others. Sometimes you have to allow yourself to be served and actually let someone know how you need help. Again, it'd be easier just to isolate yourself and think to yourself, I sure could use some help. Number seven, change. To have this community, we need to be open to Holy Spirit-empowered change. Because I'm not there. You're not there. And we're going to have to change to be that, or to at least have that as our goal and to be going towards that. But we don't like to change. Especially if someone is telling us to change. You know, it's like, well, I would have changed, but now that you told me to change, I'm not going to do it. Amen. Thanks, Jocelyn. (laughs) Again, it's costly, but it's better. And lastly, again, talk about this as a a group. Talk about this. Write some more down in your personal time if you're not in a small group. I'm sure there's more. The last one I want to say is expecting and experiencing adversity. When we do the right thing, It doesn't make things go easy. I was reading an article called Kingdom Opportunities Mean Kingdom Adversaries. And in this article, the author says, quote, My assumption seems to be that if God is with me, then everything will go smoothly and all will embrace me. And yet nothing in the story of Scripture leads us to believe that's true. I I get into that lie all the time. Well, if I'm doing the right thing, people will like me, and I want to be liked. But sometimes doing the right thing means people won't like you, and they won't like what you're doing, and they won't like the change. But just because there's adversity doesn't mean we're doing the right thing, and it doesn't mean we necessarily should stop. And again, it'd be easier just any time someone has a problem just to stop and be like, okay, I'm done. You convinced me. It'd be easier, but not better. So the question is, and I'll close with this, and then we'll have time of communion. The question is, are we ready to pay the cost? Are we ready individually 
are we ready corporately to pay the cost to have real, life-giving, biblical community at this church? Because I'm not naturally going to want to do it. Satan does not want me to do it. My sinful nature does not want to do it. But I need to do it because God's word told me to do it and he promises that this way, while hard, will bring joy. So the question is, are we ready and willing to pay the cost to be obedient and to find joy? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these short few verses that show us a picture of the life you have called us to as a community. God, that we would all be devoted to this as a goal for our church that we would be devoted to being a missional outreaching church, that we would be devoted to being a generous church, and that we would be devoted to caring for one another in all the different ways we need care. God, empower us by the same spirit you gave at Pentecost to be this community, to begin that walk of continually growing in Christ-like community and that we would be willing to pay the cost. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite those who are going to help serve communion to come to the front this morning.